Hello everyone, it's June 1st, 2021. So Viasat has been pointing out some issues that Starlink needs to address before it launches any more satellites, and NASA's New Frontiers mission selection process is also being put on hold until it too resolves some stuff. So let's talk about it, no hold up here, and lift off. Welcome to episode 311 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Yay, he's back. You're back. <laughs> hey, thanks for letting me take the day off. That was just very helpful. How'd, uh, how'd schoolwork go? Did you get everything done? So funny enough, it wasn't even grading papers, but it was more getting everybody ready for uh, the summer, the first summer session, which starts on Tuesday. Uh, and so uh, admin yeah, work. the department head, so I got a, it was all admin crap. Basically, I've got three new faculty adjuncts, and so wanted to make sure, or rather, three faculty who um, were either brand new or had not taught that particular class before. So I, you know, tried mm. to get them onboarded, had to get their course website set up, you know, get them accounts with the different, you know, online homework systems that we use for the different classes. And so it was, it was all physics related. The astronomy was already kind of all set up for the summer. Mm. Yeah, so that was that was really helpful because you know I basically worked all through the week on that kind of I continued to work on that uh, all through the week but uh that really set me up good 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 so I think I'm ready I think I'm ready <laughs> so I, I guess one little bit of space news which isn't like a big thing to talk about but I wanted to mention it because I thought it was kind of cool was I think there was a tweet by Chris Radcliffe I'm not sure who it was um who posted a cool picture of Canadarm which was struck by a little bit of orbital debris or mm. a micrometeoroid and uh, I thought there would be some more information on that, but there's not because apparently it didn't cause any real damage. But uh, I just wanted to talk about that because I thought that was really cool. I mean, you can see a mm-hmm. really good hole in Canada arm, just like a bullet hole. What, was this recently? Yeah, uh, Gilles Leclerc, Leclerc I don't know, uh, is, is the tweet that I saw. And yeah, Delta V posted it to our Discord. And like you said, though, I mean, like it was it's kind of like jaw droppingly large. <laughs> For a hit, but um, I think it happened. You know, it didn't happen like within 24 hours of that image. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think it happened, and then some days passed, and then they shared. Well, so that was what I was wondering was like how long before they found out? Because I imagine time can go by before anyone does an inspection and sees it. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends on whether you're in a position to hear it or not. Or yeah, because I was thinking like if it hit, did it shake the station at all? You know, because it didn't hit the hole. So they they noticed the hit. Um, during a routine inspection on Canada Arm 2 on May 12th, so weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, and 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 um, the the good news is is that it it basically um it didn't uh, affect the arm's performance. Yeah, it didn't hit a critical location. Yeah, it came pretty close to that joint though. Yeah, like, for real. Yikes. So this happens, you know, pretty regularly. I mean, stuff hits the station, but things tend to keep working. But if it hits just the wrong spot, I don't know. That would that would be a bad day. Yeah. First up in the news, the state of mega constellations, uh, and specifically Viasat is trying to stop Starlink from completing or from, you know, like furthering its work, which they just recently did complete their first orbital shell. I believe I uh, just read that this morning. So the first layer of Starlinks uh, have been completed. But now Viasat's trying to prevent them from going any further for some uh, interesting reasons. So I guess you want to talk about that. Right, so specifically, yeah, they're asking for a stay on a, uh, a license modification that Starlink asked for and was granted uh, on April 27th, so about a month ago. And this was about basically lowering a lot of the constellations. So of the, you know, roughly 4,400 um, 
Starlink satellites that they have permission for, uh, a little over 2,800 were in these higher orbits, uh, 1,100 to 1,300 kilometers, um, while the remainder were at 550 kilometers. That's in their original license. But this modification that they asked for and were granted was to essentially move all those kind of high altitude uh, Starlinks down to 550. So uh, it'd be all at lower altitudes and it makes them brighter from the ground, but that right also improves their kind of bandwidth and right signal to noise that they can you know, communicate with the ground with. And so uh, the idea was to improve the latency by having them all kind of down there. And so, uh, but yeah, the, the stay, um, the reason why um, Viasat is doing it is because uh, well, uh, they are a geo-satellite company, it's worth noting. <laughs> and so SpaceX is a competitor in that regard. And um, uh, they're, they're basically arguing that, you know, uh, SpaceX uh, did not do an environmental review uh, after this modification, right? And so the influence that this will have on, um, well, I mean, you can imagine there, there is, the environment includes the atmosphere, you know what I mean? Um, getting extra space debris, kind of like a lot more would be, we'd have a higher rate of objects deorbiting, um, even though, right, these are not that big and so would tend to burn up in the atmosphere, but they will affect the, you know, chemistry of the atmosphere, but probably not by much of anything, you know, yeah, how many tons of stuff that's dumping into our atmosphere every day, but I don't know. Um, but also, you know, that can also affect, you know, potentially, you know, people on the ground too. Just, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe some, uh, some critters that use the night sky for navigating and whatnot, you know, they're suddenly starting to see all these, uh, moving objects, uh, up there a lot, uh, if they're, you know, if the thing is visible. So I'm not entirely sure, but th this isn't the first time somebody basically, uh, argued that, you know, the SpaceX needs to do, you know, a, a more of an environmental uh, review. Um, and so, uh, uh, previous requests, uh, of course, the astronomers famously, um, you know, have been, you know, talking about this and uh, are concerned about it. And um, after this modification last month, you know, they, they basically uh, had asked the FCC to look into this. And so the argument is that this is done, you know, in, in compliance with the National Environmental Policy Act uh, or uh, NEPA or uh, NEPA. I guess the FCC, you know, questioned whether or not light pollution would be covered by something like that, right? You kind of saw me, you know, kind of struggling to, it's, it's a much less direct uh, effect on the environment than something that, you know, will, you know, you know, if you do a starship launch and it explodes and you have pieces of physical debris landing all over wetlands, that's, that's something that's more direct. You know, there's a much clearer line from A to B there than there is for having, you know, uh, many thousands of satellites in LEO, uh, more than we've ever had before. Um, but then they also had said in, in rejecting that request from astronomers was that the, uh, the FAA does its own environmental reviews as part of the licensing process. And so since, you know, they green stamped it, doesn't require SpaceX to do so. But um, evidently Viasat is arguing that, you know, this, you know, these rules, you know, regarding uh, uh, NEPA and licenses and all that uh, were before basically, th these were all drafted, you know, and written and established well before mega, mega constellations became a thing, right? I mean, these, these kind of snuck up on everybody, including the astronomy community. And so uh, they're saying that, you know, we, that's why they kind of want to take it to court, you know, and compel SpaceX to do this uh, review. And uh, they basically say that without a stay, if uh, the FCC doesn't basically go along with Viasat, then Viasat's going to go to the DC Circuit Court of Appeals and try to get the courts to uh, uh, to do that. And so, like you're saying, yeah, this is this is going to slow down um, Starlink uh, if if it works, you know, the way um, if it's granted, um, even if it's granted just for the meantime for the court to figure things out. But you know, uh, I don't know at, at the cadence that Starlink's been launching, I feel like they're 
you know, they, they could recover from it. They could build out their constellation pretty darn quick, <laughs> right? I think, how many, do we have, what, 13 launches so far this year? Uh, or, like, I feel like the, the Starlink launches are just showing up every single yeah. week, it seems. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny to me that, like, Viasat is even protesting this. I mean, they might have some legitimate reasons, so I guess good for them. But, like, obviously it's, you know, because uh, they don't like the competition, right? I mean, that's yeah. kind of what, I think that, that that's what most people would assume. And Viasat, however, like you said, they operate in geostationary orbit. And they only have, or they're only planning to launch, or they have launched just, like, three satellites. Like, that's what they do. Like, they kind of operate in a whole different regime, it seems. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they should shouldn't be threatened by Starlink, but at the same time, they're not even doing the same thing. Like, they don't do this whole low-latency broadband internet, you know? Like, they do something different. So, I'm just kind of surprised that, like, we're not seeing this kind of protest from something like OneWeb. Instead, we're getting it from Viasat. And that just kind of surprises me, because I maybe, don't know what they're hoping to accomplish. I mean, maybe, uh, I don't know, OneWeb not being an American company might be uh, an effect there. But, but I mean, they are, yeah, and like Colin's saying, there, there is still competition there, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if... Mm -hmm. if you have been getting your uh, your satellite, you know, uh, if, you, if you've been getting your connection from uh, these geo satellites, and now suddenly you have a new option where you can, you know, get. Yeah, uh, well, that's true, and, and I guess I guess what I should have said because I was thinking that in the back of my mind, but I guess what I really want to say is Viasat kind of doesn't stand a chance. So why are they bothering? <laughs> that's kind of what I mean to say. <laughs> like it seems that Starlink is so much better. And, I mean, you cannot compete when you have a constellation like Starlink competing with you know a couple of satellites in geostationary orbit. Nominal Starlink is so much better. What? ends up actually happening might be a question, right? There's been people arguing that essentially well, sure. the places yeah. that need it are the places that can't afford it. And the places that can afford it are the places that, that don't need it. So whether or not the, right, they say what the business case closes or whatever for Starlink, I'm not a financial guy or anything like that. So I, you know, that that's something kind of beyond me. But, you know, it, for me, it's kind of just like, we'll have to wait and see. So I'm not entirely sure that Starlink is a, is a done deal. Um, you know, maybe the maybe the pizza boxes, right? Those th that seems to be the difficult part, right? Getting these in orbit, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, seems to be the easy bit. But getting those receivers uh, on the ground to to be useful and effective and close the business case for them, because I mean, I don't know. Maybe Elon does have the money if he wants Starlink, so we can put it around Mars. That he would take a loss on it, so long as he's making so much maybe, money yeah. from SpaceX. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's a good question because, yeah, like as advertised, Starlink kind of does seem like that. It would just blow these things out of the water. But I feel like there's all there's, you know, there's other complicated things, too. right? I mean, like just pointing your your receiver at the ground at a moving target like that and getting a good, strong connection the whole time as it streaks across the sky and then cutting to the next one. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's I'm not a I'm not an antenna expert either, but I feel like there's going to be some challenges in that as well. Having your antenna be able to connect to the Starlink's easily and most importantly i guess cheaply enough to make it you know affordable for you to have one of these you know sitting in your house in the rural wherever you live right because that's always the business case they talk about yeah um i mean i think that elon would take a loss on it for sure mm -hmm. if you know it, it just yeah just that the those little pizza boxes the technology has to be i guess like proven and i think that it has been right i mean there's there are some tests that obviously have been done and i watched a video i don't know if it was like one of you who posted it but there was a guy somewhere in like you know fairly far out somewhere in like rural america and uh he and he actually had one and he, and he went to the end of his driveway and he set it up and you know it worked i don't know what kind of reception he was you know that he was actually getting but 
Yeah, I mean, it still remains to be seen, but I think that ultimately Starlink will work, you know, and work much better. Um, there just might be some hiccups yeah. at first. And 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 it's not Viasat isn't the only other company right that exists in Geo <laughs> doing communications in Geo. And so yeah, that's why. Like I, I I mean your original point, I I, I kind of don't know either. You know why, why specifically Viasat? Um, uh, you know, uh, Jim Bridenstine's on the board of directors uh, uh, since uh, you know for a month or so now, and he um. You know, he's been talking about mega satellites being a uh, uh, concern for people. And so, um, I don't know, maybe it's just a matter of, you know, one company was going to be the first to do it. And Viasat happened to be the company that did it. You know what I mean? If they didn't file this stay, maybe some other geo company in a month or two would have done it. You know, there's a selection effect there. <laughs> I do have this on a related note I thought was kind of interesting, um, maybe worth pointing out. Um, so the American Astronomical Society is hosting uh, their second uh, SATCOM conference. And so this is specifically bringing together astronomers and engineers. Um, SATCOM 1 was uh, mostly uh, SpaceX engineers just because SpaceX was really the only one who had built up their, you know, constellation to such a degree, you know, 12 months ago even. Um, but uh, the SATCOM 2, you know, is basically bringing, you know, industry and astronomers together to try to, you know, basically look into this. And so even though there's, you know, going to be, you know, they ultimately draft a uh, report basically giving recommendations and sort of solutions and clues and things like that. Um, but it is a free conference and it's virtual. So if anybody's interested, uh, I'm sure we'll put a, a link in the show notes. And um, the registration isn't open yet as of the, the, today's recording on May 30th, but um, uh, it will be uh, available sometime this month. So once again, that's July 12th to 16th. Uh, you know, virtual free conferences are really easy to register for and check out. And even if you are got something else going on, you know, have it in the background and uh, see what's going on there. And so they, they cover a lot of stuff, uh, which is really interesting. And then their first um, report, because I, I went to SATCON 1, and their first one they had, uh, they have in the report a nice image of um, uh, what's called a four-meter um, telescope in Cerro Tololo. Uh, which is a clone of one that is, uh, there, there's two identical four meters, basically identical four meters, one at Kit Peak up here that I've gone to, and then one down in, Argen uh, in Chile. And this one in Chile, though, I mean, it's just got, you can just see how bad the train of Starlinks will affect a wide field of view instrument, right? Because these things have like, you know, I don't know, off the top of my head, it's like dozens of CCDs, you know what I mean? Like they mosaic these to have more and more CCDs and more and more pixels overall. And so there's... Yeah. There's a lot more room for your Starlinks to come passing through. And they straight up, you know, say in the report that, you know, if, if, if we build out to the tens of thousands, because, right, it's not even just, you know, uh, the most, you know, OneWeb and uh, SpaceX are the ones that have, you know, their constellations, you know, up to some degree, uh, a lot more uh, in the case of Starlink and SpaceX. But, you know, if China, you know, and the, everyone else who says that they want to build out constellations and you get to tens of thousands or 10,000 or so, then you might literally just never really have uh, exposures that don't um, involve, you know, don't have uh, these trails because you would always get, you know, you get planes and satellites and things that would screw up an exposure, but it was rare. You'd maybe get a couple of nights, what I found. But, um, yeah. And, and of course, all this I'm saying is just about professional astronomy. Uh, forget amateur astronomy, forget just, you know, people um, just wanting to enjoy the night sky and be able to look up and, uh, you know, not see uh, little streaks of light going by. Yeah. So we do we do have a little bit of an update on the uh, the, the Chinese uh, constellation too, uh, the Guowang. And so um, basically, uh, you know, China has officially created a... Uh, a group, a, corp a company, uh, China Satellite Network Group. And so this is going to be uh, operating their 13,000 satellite constellation. 
yeah, there's not that much to really uh, say about it other than, I mean, there's there's quite a variety. Not all, you know, the details are known, as you can imagine, but there's sort of sub-constellations anywhere from 500 to a little over 1,000 kilometers in altitude and, you know, a good wide range of inclinations between 30 and 85 degrees. So this is going to be pretty large uh, coverage. Um, something that I didn't know, but two of, you know, China's got a number of different, you know, I don't know if they're space companies, even though they have corporation in their title, or they're just space entities, you know, that are responsible for like, you know, some of them build spacecraft, some of them build rockets, some of them launch, you know, et cetera. But the uh, CASC, uh, the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, and then CASIC, the China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, um, they've already apparently launched uh, satellites uh, to kind of verify um, the Guoang uh, constellation network, basically, you know, kind of these forerunner constellations. So Hongyan and Hongyun, have been built out to kind of do this already. And so, I mean, China's a gigantic country, like third or fourth largest country in the world, depending on how you measure it. And as a result, you know, they have uh, a lot of rural places where you could imagine, you know, having uh, high-speed internet uh, would be useful uh, in, in theory. Um, in practice, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm not a China expert, but it does seem like uh, giving Broadband access uh, to everybody might be an issue, but maybe it's just, you know, to, you know, companies and, you know, different groups that are out at these uh, more remote locations. So that's our update on the state of mega constellations. Uh, now we can talk about um, the state of the New Frontiers missions, which is not great at the moment. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so New Frontiers, right? So just to remind everyone, because I know that I would need to be reminded, these are the, what are they called? The crap. I want to say like the, the middle class, but that's, that's oh, no, uh, medium, not the right term. Medium class. Medium class. That's the word I'm looking for. There's some right. M word. These are the medium class types of missions. Uh, they're not as small as I believe the discovery ones, but they're not as big as, you know, the flagship ones. So mm. New Frontiers call for proposals has been delayed by as much as two years. Um, mm. And that was supposed to happen, I believe at the end, what I put, um, or the spring of next year. No, it was supposed to happen or it was recommended to happen around like December of this year, but that's not going to be happening for various reasons, which we'll discuss. Just to clarify, the New Frontiers missions are actually based on the Decadal Survey. Um, and we had talked just before we started recording what that was, because I know that it's a term that we throw, or, you know, something that, you know, we say a lot. And in fact, I was never clear like, on exactly what the Decadal Survey was. I had some idea, but basically, you know, this is like um, a, a summary within a particular field on what are the most important scientific things mm. to be researched within that field. And in this case, we're talking about planetary science. And, you know, there's a whole board of members that are basically made up of, you know, like academics from all over the country. Um, and indeed, I think the rest of the world, too, to some degree. So, yeah, they get together once every 10 years um, and they decide, you know, what should be focused on. Uh, and the new decadal survey, that will be released in the spring of next year. And since the, the new frontiers request for proposals is actually being put off by two years, the fear is that those new missions uh, might have to change what their area of focus is because they are always based on the decadal survey. Mm. But we don't know what the decadal survey, we don't know what they'll be focusing on for the next 10 years or, or like exactly what the recommendations will be. But not to worry. So... Like, even though the New Frontiers mission call for proposals is being put off by two years, uh, they will still be essentially evaluated according to the past 10 years decadal survey. Huh. And I think we all know what the focuses are there because, you know, that's been what these all, you know, like what all these past missions have been, you know, like lunar sample returns or doing asteroid missions, uh, things like that. Hmm. What's interesting is that even two years ago, a review of the decadal survey 
or I guess maybe of or by the people uh, who run that, I guess. I'm not sure what the correct term is, but uh, they found that for the 2013 through 2022 time block, NASA has already been falling behind on their missions. And now we have things like COVID and we have the delay of the Dragonfly mission, and that's just pushing things back even further. And that's why, you know, there hasn't been a new call for proposal. So that's not good. Uh, so I don't know if they've kept up otherwise. Um, and I think it's supposed to be two or no, was it five? I think it's two per decade. Two per decade. Okay. So we have this one, right? We have Dragonfly, I guess, and we're waiting on one more, but that's going to be pushed until a couple years from now. So I wonder why they said, I guess just because it's it was 2018 and yeah, they hadn't had anything at that time pinned down. Um, although I believe Dragonfly has been in development for quite some time now, I believe, right? It's funny, like you're saying, the, there's, a, there's so many dates involved, it's, or mm-hmm. years in particular, so it's tough to kind of keep track. Yeah, yeah, maybe they just, yeah, they hadn't been uh, basically uh, getting their competitions out and assessing them and awarding them as quickly as they wanted to. And so, yeah, this was clear even three years ago. And so I guess maybe that's what, that's why there's this overlap because there was a delay, right? The the fact they were falling behind plus another delay from the the pandemic means that basically the next decadal survey is going to drop before they made a decision based on the, Hmm. uh, another decision based on the previous one. And thus people that had competed in the previous one were like, oh, that's no fair. But like you said, the good news is they're like, no, that's all right. We're going to, we're going to, consider the previous one. We're not gonna we're not gonna be cheap like this. That would cause a conflict of interest and it would basically disrupt a whole lot of work that's been done, you know, like up until this point. So that's just not fair to do that. Uh so they're going to stick with the previous decadal survey. So the call for proposals will be delayed by several years, although it might happen sooner, um hopefully. According to Wikipedia, the announcement of opportunity will not be until twenty twenty four. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what is the difference there, or is this just two conflicting dates? Okay, so so what it looked like was happening was that, okay, so here's my understanding of this. And again, the, the number of dates and postponements is making things mm-hmm. a little difficult mm-hmm. to follow. But first things first, and just because it's worth, I, I think it's just cool stating what are the new, because there's only been four of them selected so far, right? So the New Frontiers missions were New Horizons, Juno, Osiris-Rex, and then a couple years ago, Dragonfly was selected. So now you've got those. Okay. And NASA's saying, all right, cool. Well, the next target uh, announcement of opportunity should be in 2021 or 2022. So coming right up. The problem is, though, we have all these delays that we're just talking about. So now, instead of New Horizon, uh, New Frontiers 5, you know, being you being able to apply for that in 2021 or 2022, based on the previous decadal survey, it's pushed as far out as 2024 now with a new decadal survey showing up before then. And thus all the people, right? Because these people are like still working, you know, they're still doing work on it. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's not like it, their, their work only begins in 2024. You know what I mean? And so um, that's why uh, if, if they did shift gears, then the ones who've already been, you know, uh, recommended in that previous decadal survey, you know, if they suddenly had to, they their observations were, or sorry, their recommendations were out of date because mm-hmm. a new decadal survey dropped, that would seem to be unfair to them. And so even though 2024, when New Frontiers 5 announcement of opportunity drops, you ignore the decadal survey that just happened and you still you know, right. yeah. select based on the recommendations of the previous decadal survey. That is exactly what's happening. Um, I was just confused as to why 
or what exactly an announcement of opportunity is in whites in 2024, according to one source, but uh, the Space News article, the announcement of opportunity, which is what they call it, um, might be as late as October of 2023. So not 2024, but as late as 2023, and you know, possibly sooner than that, hopefully. So that October 2023 is referring to the draft announcement of opportunity with the final version in October 2024. Okay. So a draft version... Yeah, late 2023 and the final version in 2024. So that's why we got two different dates. Oof. All right, that explains it. Thanks. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that was that's that was not clear based on that reporting. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is important to point out that yeah, because you had mentioned New Frontiers Five. So this is the fifth iteration of the New Frontiers class, right? Um, we've had previous ones, like you said, there has been a New Horizons in Juno and Osiris Rex, but those were from New Frontiers One, Two, and Three, and then Four is Dragonfly, and then Five will be, you know, whatever we'll see. Yeah, and and, and it might be worth. And it might be worth mentioning, like the real um, at the at the heart of this is like what what does that mean that they are going to not basically give recommendations from the newest decadal survey? Is basically the chairs of the decadal survey basically just messaged uh, or just uh, basically told people that they were not going to recommend any changes to the mission themes for the mm -hmm. next New Frontiers mission. So the, the the decadal survey people themselves are basically saying when it comes to NF five, we are going to consider the. We're going to retain the list of mission themes is the way they phrase it. So this was a decision that committee made rather than NASA making it or something like that. Which kind of surprised me because I don't understand why – I don't understand the relationship they have there because can't like NASA still do what NASA is going to do? Like I don't see why they're beholden to what the Decadal Survey says. They are to some degree or at least they should go on the recommendation. But you know they can kind of set their own timetable. I, I don't know why the Decadal Survey – would have to dictate that, um, which it's not going to do, obviously, but I just don't see why that's their domain to say, okay, NASA, this is what you should be focusing on for, you know, your missions in the, you know, the next 10 years or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's, you know, NASA, right, is a like a public service, really, you know what I mean? They, they're funded with taxpayer money. And, and if they were to go and basically ignore what, you know, by design, the decadal survey is supposed to bring together the whole community for a particular field and kind of prioritize well, things. Not a good look. So it would, it would, it would be bad for them to go against, I feel like the recommendations there. So it's, it does seem to be more of a, 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 yeah, that seems like that would be bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's my guess. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. And Ben, what is the first one? All right, Mars helicopter lands safely despite computer glitch. When NASA's Ingenuity helicopter lifted off for its sixth flight on May 22nd, the flight plan called for an altitude of 10 meters, or 33 feet, and a couple of maneuvers that would cover some 215 meters, about 700 feet, before touchdown. Things went smoothly until 54 seconds into the flight when a glitch interrupted the flow of images from the helicopter's navigation camera to the onboard computer. While only a single image was lost, all the following images had incorrect timestamps, which affected the navigation algorithm. As a result, Ingenuity pitched and rolled more than 20 degrees at some points during the flight, although the resilient helicopter managed to land safely within 5 meters or 60 feet of its targeted location. Close call. <laughs> yeah. Next up, multiple new lunar rovers planned for the coming years. The CSA announced plans to develop a lunar rover in partnership with NASA. A robotic vehicle designed to survive at least one lunar night would launch in 2026 and carry at least two science instruments, Canadian and American. 
Meanwhile, JAXA announced a lunar rover that will rideshare on iSpace's 2022 mission. Roughly the size of a baseball, the rover will split in two after landing, with the two hemispheres serving as wheels. Finally, General Motors and Lockheed Martin have said they are working on developing a next-gen lunar rover that can operate both crewed and uncrewed. Designed to support Artemis, the mission hasn't been selected by NASA, but would give astronauts a larger range of travel than the Apollo lunar rover vehicle's 4.7 miles. And finally, Tianzhou-2 docks with Chinese space station. The Tianzhou-2 cargo spacecraft has successfully docked with the Tianhe module in Leo eight hours after its launch from Wenchang spaceport. The cargo module has brought propellant and supplies in advance of the first crewed missions to Tianhe later this month, when Shenzhou-12 will take veteran commander Nia Haisheng and two rookie crew members as the first of four crewed missions launched for the station's construction through the end of 2022. Experimental modules will also be launched next year, and the station will be co-orbital with the Shuntian Optical Module, a large FOV Hubble-class space telescope planned to be launched in 2024. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns and book recommendations. We always like those. Uh, so, Ben, we got a book recommendation based on our discussion of rusting fairings, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we, we've got two books uh, in this segment. Uh, so, Etienne wrote in uh, via email and recommended a book. So, we were talking about SpaceX fairings in the last two weeks, uh, and so we're going to push it a little farther. So, this, uh, this book recommendation is for rust – the Longest War. That's the title of the book. Uh, the author is Jonathan Waldman. So, so the book is basically just about how, uh, corrosion is like humanity's like longest enemy. <laughs> like this is, yeah. this is going to be our constant fight. Anything that we build in an oxidizing atmosphere, uh, is just, it's going to fall apart. Um, any, anywhere that's good for people to live is bad for anything but organic, uh, structures or, or bad for anything but structures that can, can repair themselves. So I, I haven't read it, uh, but it certainly sounds like a good, uh, a, a good book recommendation. So there's a link to, uh, thriftbooks.com, uh, in the show notes. Then the, the second item in here, uh, I feel really bad. Um, the publishers of a book, um, about Katherine Johnson, uh, wrote us and sent us a link to their Kickstarter. So that the name of the book is The Human Computer, Katherine Johnson's Story. And like I said, the, the publishers sent us like two emails and I, I read them and went, Oh, that's awesome. I gotta, I gotta look into that and put into the show. And I totally forgot. So, so as of, uh, Sunday the 30th, they have 19 days left. Uh, they're at $4,000 out of their $10,000 goal. This is actually their, their second run at Kickstarter. Their first one, uh, was not funded. And so they went and made some changes and got some more volunteer, some more astrophysicists, uh, on board to do volunteer work so that they could lower the, the cost of the book. Uh, but it, it looks really cool. Um, so the idea is they took a bunch of Catherine Johnson's, um, you know, scientific reports and like did a, a remaster on them where they transcribed them. So they'll be printed in, in higher quality fonts, you know, instead of the, 
uh, the low fuzzy uh, quality fonts that we have in archives. They rebuilt some of the graphics in the reports. Um, and then they're also adding um, commentary from a couple of different astrophysicists um, talking about the importance of our work and like what, what these uh, particular reports mean. It, it looks like a great idea. So definitely go throw some money at them is, uh, is my recommendation. If you pledge right, right now, the, currency is in euros and i think that's probably because i'm not logged into kickstarter but to get a limited edition volume it, the the lowest pledge for that is 45 euro so that's uh like 55 dollars uh for a book that looks like a really great read if if you read this kind of stuff or just a, a browse through like a coffee table kind of book, because the, the diagrams really are gorgeous and the reports are like important and impactful in our world. And it's celebrating, um, a fantastic woman of color. Like uh, it's, it's early, uh, NASA human space fight. Like how, how, these are all fantastic things. So go, go throw a Euro or two at them. Uh, if you if you have some free. Cool. So those are some good book recommendations. We don't do those probably often enough, really. Let's do This Week in Spaceflight History. And we have one winner, Ben Howard. Congratulations on being the single soul, mm -hmm. the soul winner. <laughs> yeah. The clue was binoculars to plowshares, which, you know, I didn't know what that was in reference to. I figured <laughs> it might have something to do with telescopes. And I think you're going to clarify. Uh, so what's that about? All right. So This Week in Spaceflight History is the 4th of June, 2012. And it's really scary to me that 2012 now counts as history for the purposes of this segment. <laughs> All right. June 4th, 2012, uh, NASA announces NRO's donation of two Hubble-class space telescopes. So uh, it's really fun that we talked about Hubble-class space telescopes. Uh, we already talked about... Um, W first or, um, uh, Nancy Grace Roman. And we also talked about, um, the decadal survey. So all of those things are going to be included in this. So back in January of 2011, NASA was contacted by the NRO and they said, Hey, we have some spy satellites that we aren't going to use. Do you want them? And NASA, uh, took some time to think about it and they accepted the two vehicles, um, in August of, uh, 2011. Uh, and then they, they announced, uh, the fact that they had accepted them, uh, in the, in June of 20, uh, 2012. So that's, that's my, uh, my easiest to figure out anchor <laughs> for this event. Uh, the, the temporal anchor. Um, so just real quick, what, what did they actually get? Um, they got two, uh, complete quote unquote, complete satellites, more than just these two satellites exist. I believe that NASA also received the extra bits, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, it's, it's really not clear how, like how I would even go about figuring this out. But, uh, as far as I can tell, the package included two complete satellites, um, a spare primary mirror, and then some additional parts for a third, uh, satellite. And I'm assuming that they're, they're probably structural parts, uh, but you know, it, it's always nice to have, um, something to cannibalize off of, uh, in case you accidentally drop your telescope during integration or something. So we don't know, we don't know all the specs on these things because they're classified 
they're classified payloads. Um, we know that they are um, about the size of Hubble. We know that they have a shorter focal length than Hubble. Um, and with all the information all put in one place, it, it seems pretty clear that they are actually um, Keyhole 11 uh, Keenan vehicles. So KH11 is the, is the program. Um, and so they, as you would expect, <laughs> they're pretty stripped down. There are no electronics uh, that includes the CCDs. All of that is gone. Um, and so the, the value in this gift is the structure for sure, but even more valuable are the optics because um, they come with two mirrors, the primary and the secondary mirror, um, as well as all of the um, the hardware that you need to control these things. Um, and, and so these optics uh, apparently uh, are outdated uh, in terms of military reconnaissance, um, but in terms of astronomy, they, they're really, really good uh, optics. I mean, they're, they're totally usable, like uh, maybe not you know, actual state of the art, but darn close. And, um, they're huge too. Uh, both of the prime, the primary mirrors in both of the satellites and the spare, they're all 2.4 meter mirrors, um, which is the same size as Hubble. And they're also the same quality as Hubble. Now they, they may take a little bit of work to actually put into space because they have a coating that is a little old. Um, so it's, you know, it's taken some wear and tear just, you know, sitting in storage. Um, and, and so there was discussion about, um, stripping the, um, stripping that, that chemical treatment on top and, and replacing it with something that's more up to date and also would be newer by definition. But yeah, 2.4 meter primary mirrors, as well as secondary mirrors that are actually steerable, which is pretty cool. Um, and the, the focal length is about half of Hubble's focal length, which uh, means that they're going to have a wider field of view. Also, there's some other difficulties with that, but we'll get we'll get into that. So, you know, NASA gets these these beautiful um, telescopes. And the question is, what the heck do we do with them? Immediately, uh, a, a an organization called uh, Salso was was put together. It's the study on applications of large space optics, and I think Salso it just uh, it's good. So Salso uh, put out um, an RFP, you know, asking what, what what should we do with these. But it was pretty clear right off the bat um, that W first, uh, which is now known as the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, uh, was was the right thing to do. And the the biggest driver behind that, other than you know just serendipitous, hey, that you know this kind of works as a vehicle, um, was that the twenty uh, the the twenty ten uh, decadal survey basically said W first needs to be a priority once JWST is up in orbit, um, and and so NASA kind of took that and went, yeah, okay, great. Let's shove it in here. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't just as easy as deciding we're going to put W first inside of, uh, of one of these gifted vehicles. Um, first off, they already had plans for W for like they already had designs in progress. Um, and adapting those plans to this NRO vehicle was going to be expensive. And in fact, it, it, 
could easily have been as expensive as just starting from scratch with, uh, with a new vehicle. Um, so we got to get into some nomenclature. Um, w first DRM. Well, okay. So DRM means design reference mission. And so that's, um, very early on in the NASA life cycle. Um, you know, we start off in, in cycle A and that's when you're, when you're just, or sorry, phase A. And that's when you're just deciding what the mission is going to look like. Um, what kind of hardware are we going to need? How do we match science objectives with hardware? What, uh, bonus science objectives can we add on really rough level sketches, right? So, um, W first had three major DRMs, which are sort of, um, phase A ideas, right? They kind of compete with each other. Uh, we say, okay, let's propose all these different versions and then we'll pick, uh, we'll pick one to, to continue on with. Um, so these three major DRMs were DRM one, DRM two, and then AFTA. DRM one and DRM two, um, were the, uh, homemade vehicle, uh, plans. Um, DRM-1 featured a 1.3 meter uh, primary mirror, and then DRM-2 had a smaller 1.1 meter mirror. And what what's really interesting is DRM-2 was sort of this, let's be agile and think on our feet, because uh, W-First got caught up by Euclid, uh, ESA's um, infrared telescope. And DRM, the DRM one design had a lot of, um, a lot of similarities with Euclid. And so when DRM two was spun up, it was trying to do all of the things that W first was supposed to do, but, uh, they were going to drop some of the capabilities that were going to be duplicative with Euclid. Um, and they were also trying to lower the cost of the mission. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> it always happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, DRM two shrunk the size of its mirror, uh, primarily so that they could fly on a cheaper ascent vehicle. And it, it was really fascinating. I've got a lot of links, um, for W first itself, right? Like not just, um, the NRO donation, but like, W first, uh, has a lot of documentation. It's the right amount of maturity that, uh, it's new enough that all this stuff was published online, but it's old enough that it's already been published and we can access it. And so there's a, a lot of good material to sink your teeth into, but DRM one and DRM two sort of have this back and forth that you see within the community. When W first was first proposed, like, you know, this is, it's exciting. It's this new mission. It's fulfilling all these things that we, these capabilities that we didn't have. Um, and then when it was time to switch over to DRM two, people were a little bummed that we were going down to a smaller mirror, but people were excited because there was this, this design feature called an unobstructive pupil that, uh, that DRM two had that, uh, that DRM one didn't have, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it had an obstructed, uh, pupil. And so basically, uh, Dennis, you can totally, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, it's talking about the amount of material that sits between your primary mirror and your aperture. So, so a good example of an obstructed versus a non-obstructed telescope design, um, an obstructed yeah. telescope design would be a Newtonian telescope, which is where you have uh, a giant cylinder. And this is just like a hobby telescope, right? Uh, you have this, um, 
this big uh, cylinder. The aperture is at one end where the light enters. The primary mirror is at the back. And then there's a secondary mirror up uh, near the aperture up at the front um, that reflects light uh, out to the side to an eyepiece. And in that case, um, light is having to pass the secondary mirror in order to reach the, the primary mirror. So the, um, the, that's the obstruction there. Um, a non-obstructed, uh, design would be something more simple, like a sight glass, like a, you know, a classic pirate, uh, telescoping sight glass where you like flick it out and put it up to your eye and put the other hand on the hip and put your foot up on the bow of the ship. And you, mm-hmm. you know, you look out the front where, all the light that comes in the front, uh, it doesn't hit a mirror, right? It, it goes through a lens and then it goes through a secondary lens and then enters your eye. Um, and in that case, all of the light that comes in the aperture is eventually going into your eye or into your instrument. And so these two different W first, uh, versions had, uh, DRM one was an obstructed pupil. DRM two was an unobstructed pupil. This is a, really important design feature. Um, you wouldn't think that it would be because like, uh, like a giant, uh, Dobsonian or, or Newtonian telescope, it is super helpful and good. And like, it's, it's a accessible, uh, usable performative telescope that you can buy and it, it's obstructed. So like, what's the problem? Like if it works fine for hobby telescopes on the ground like what what's the problem uh we'll we'll talk more about that in a little bit so drm1 and drm2 are kind of you know uh, these are two possibilities drm2 is going to be cheaper to fly uh it has an unobstructed pupil they were probably going to be going with that and then all of that basically got thrown out of the window um when this nro vehicle came along and so um to begin working on that possibility where you're having to design all of your instruments to get crammed into an extant, uh, like, like an already pre-built optics package. Um, they, they split that off into another DRM, but instead of calling it DRM three, like a normal person would, they called it AFTA. So AFTA stands for astrophysics focused telescope assets, which, um, doesn't seem helpful at all. <laughs> just, just to me that, that doesn't say, uh, we're, we're putting, uh, optic or we're putting, uh, instruments in a, in a pre-built optics package. Um, but yeah, so they, they spun off AFTA as a separate thing. And of, of course it won out, of course, you know, the, the cost is going to go up for AFTA compared to like DRM2. Um, but there were just, there were a lot of benefits. And so, uh, for a long time, it, it was actually called W first AFTA. Um, but by, uh, 2016, uh, February 2016, uh, they had basically thrown out, uh, DRM1 and DRM2 and decided to go with the AFTA version. And so they renamed the whole project to just W first, uh, cause at that point it, the AFTA was implied. They had designed quite a bit of this package getting ready to go into phase B, but right as phase B began, they did a, a really big tweak where it started impacting things that um, 
that the obstructed pupil uh, would also impact, right? Because the NRO vehicles have an obstructed pupil. The two major things that I was able to find uh, that wound up changing was they they reevaluated what slew rate they'd be capable of, um, and they decided to go with a pessimistic evaluation, which is to say it, they decided that this thing was probably going to be slewing slower than um, than they had originally thought it was going to and what the original you know science concept pitches uh, were were hoping to utilize um, and then the detector layout was rotated by 90 degrees those two things don't seem like a huge deal but they and, and ultimately it's still going to be able to do science it's just those two things wound up irking some scientists that I was able to uh, to find mm. um, while I was doing the research. So for the NRO vehicle, I want to start talking about this obstructed pupil. So what's really neat is that it has a steerable secondary mirror, which is a performance gain. It allows you to really precisely dial in what you're looking at. The problem is that instead of the secondary mirror being off to the side uh, and not getting in the way, it's it's hung in the middle of uh, uh, of the telescope body, and then it has uh, struts that connect to it. And those struts, I'm assuming, are chunkier than they might have to be because uh, they have to be orthogonal and they have to be able to actuate. Um, and so they they take up a, a, a decent amount of light. And not only that, but they actually actually um, scatter some light. Um, there is a measurement um, called point spread function. And Dennis, do you know what that is off the top of your head? Oh, yeah. Basically, um, if you had an ideal point source of light, uh, when you image it through your telescope, there's it's not going to be a point. It's going to be a little blob. And the point spread function is basically a measurement of how much light is collected in how small an area. Yeah, perfect. I'm I'm glad I let you do, <laughs> glad oh. I let you do that. Um, so these um, these struts um, cause uh, PSF uh, the the PSF to go down, and it sounds like it actually scatters light in a way that is particularly bad if you're trying to do exoplanet hunting, and and that's what all of these little changes uh, that I've kind of been pushing, kicking that can down the line, come down to. Um, w first or Nancy Grace Roman really wants to be able to do exoplanet hunting as one of its uh, major science objectives, right? And I saw a scientist who actually described these struts as being in exactly the wrong location for um, for exoplanet hunting. Um, and, and I don't know what the orientation of these struts um, is going to, how that impacts that. Um, but it sounds like they were moved to an even worse position when they rotated everything 90 degrees. Um, I guess the way that it scatters light is, is um, quirky in a way that, that we don't like. Um, and, and so when I was talking about kind of this push and pull, um, Imagine um, scientists going from DRM-1 to DRM-2 and going, ah, oh, it's a smaller mirror, but it's going to be so much better for exoplanet hunting. And the, the exoplanet hunters are all super hyped. And then AFTA comes along and suddenly all those bad things, <laughs> all those bad things are back and they, and they lost their DRM-2. It, it kind of sucks. But, you know, we're going to get a lot of bang for our buck uh, with 
with the switch to this platform. So before uh, AFTA, um, so back in 2011, before uh, W first knew that it was even possibly going to be getting a new vehicle, uh, back in 2011, the total cost was estimated to be around $1.6 billion in 2011 dollars. After AFTA was selected, that cost had risen up to about $3.2 billion dollars. Uh, it looked like at one point they were looking at three billion, and then there was a little jump that wound up bumping it up to three point two billion. I don't know if that was that small little redesign going into phase B or not, but you know we're we're talking about uh, three point two. As of March twenty twenty, um, the cost uh, is still expected to be three point two billion, but that's kind of optimistic. Uh, the biggest it's expected to be the the largest cost is expected to be about 3.9 billion ish it's it's a little over 3.9 billion so you know kind of one of the things as i'm going through this the thing in the back of my mind was okay is this actually cheaper and i think clearly switching to the afta design it was not cheaper than going with drm2 and i think that's really fascinating because i would have thought you know, cause I've heard about the, the NRO donation, uh, here and there, but I've never really looked into it. And, and my assumption was always that, Hey, this is cool because it, it makes NASA's job cheaper. You've already got all this work done for you, but it turns out that at least in a particular case of, of W first, that's not the case. This actually increased the cost of the project. Now, like obviously going from 1.6 to 3.2, you're always going to have these cost overruns, right? We always estimate as best we can in the beginning and we always estimate low because if you estimate high, you're never going to get your project taken care of. Like there are all these biases um, that cause you to estimate low. Um, so costs always go up. Um, but I, I would really be interested to know it. How, like how much this actually went up. Um, if we had been able to um, go ahead with DRM too, maybe like do two different W firsts, um, which one would have um, wound up being uh, so expensive. However, the, the consensus that I was able to find is that the product per dollar uh, ratio goes way, way, way up using the NRO vehicle. Big telescopes, by nature are expensive, uh, but they can also do more. So we're going to be doing more. We kind of lumped in a, a, a lot of additional capability into this, but the cost increase, as far as I can tell, it is well worth it. It doesn't look like this was uh, even a marginally bad decision. You know, it looks like this, mm. this was a, a good decision by my reckoning, and it looks like it's a good decision by pretty much everybody else's reckoning as well. Although um, because DRM2 is no longer in the running, it, it doesn't seem like there is that much uh, comparative analysis going on. No, nobody's really speculating on which one would have been better. So yeah, that's uh, Nancy Grace Roman. Uh, I'm very excited to see it fly. Um, but mm. what about the second vehicle? Um, and here's the, here's the real bummer. I am sad to say, I don't think the second vehicle is going to fly at all. Certainly it, it may get used, but I, I think nobody is going to say that it will be used. Right. And, uh, I, I think the probability of it being used is, is fairly low. With that said, though, there are a lot of people who uh, are positively salivating looking at this thing. There are some limitations um, because it was donated by NRO. Their uh, contract um, precludes any Earth observation missions. Um, I think that is one of the big reasons 
Well, okay. So my initial thought was that that was one of the big reasons why it wasn't going to get used at least in the next four years because the Biden administration is very earth science focused. Um, but actually the, the terms of the, of the donation don't preclude earth science as a whole, just earth observation. You can't use this for anything that a spy satellite would be used for. And, and that's fine. NASA is more than happy to look at the upper atmosphere or, or things like that. And in fact, one of the proposals that I found was actually looking at, um, Aurora, uh, on earth. And, I think it's absolutely hmm. wacky to think about taking uh Hubble and pointing it at the Aurora. Like there, there is so much uh resolution capability here uh, that it, it would be really interesting to, to see that happen. I don't know, Dennis, you can weigh in on this, but I kind of doubt that if we were to do an Aurora mission or an upper atmosphere mission, that this would be placed in low earth orbit. I think it'd probably go out to L2 uh, and, and look back at earth. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about them. I mean, like, I know when you're an astronomy telescope, you assume everything's infinitely far away, you know, <laughs> but the fact that you can take a Hubble and, you know, yeah. a Keyhole 11 and aim it at Earth and still get it to work, that's that's the kind of optics I don't know much about. And so, yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe you could get it, you know, uh, observe them up close. But yeah, I <laughs> my gut my gut feels the same thing as you, like you'd want to be further away so you could actually focus on it without being too close but obviously this vehicle was designed to be able to focus on earth's surface from low earth orbit uh but yeah yeah i don't know so uh of course there's the rfi uh that i talked about from salso and i i was looking for a a good succinct list of all the responses and and I, i wasn't able to find like a a list of them all in one place, but you can certainly uh, Google for them pretty easily. There were more than 60 responses or more than 60 applications. But, you know, to, to go back to my pessimism, this vehicle is ever going to be used. Uh, I just want to point out that Nancy Grace Roman is in line behind JWST. JWST is on its way you know, it, it's well on its way to actually get into space, but it's not there yet. And once it gets to space, we have to wait for NGR to get to space. And then after that, maybe we could do something um, in the realm of that second NRO telescope. But, um, you know, kind of the, the best case scenario is that this thing gets used far in the future. Um, worst case scenario is it doesn't get used at all. Um, so we'll, we'll see the, the longer it's in storage, the more the, the coding on the mirrors degrades. So that's, you know, a, a small added cost, but an added cost. The, the storage cost for this thing is something on the order of like a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like it's, it's not too bad compared to, you know, $3 billion to actually use the thing. Um, so I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of pressure to actually fly this thing. And it, it doesn't look like NASA's budget is going to be flush with cash anytime soon. Um, so who knows if you, think that this, if you disagree with me, please write in. I would love to hear your reasoning uh, or, you know, maybe just write in with your favorite, with your favorite Salso proposal. Uh, I think it'd be really fun to come back next week and and talk about some favorite proposal proposals from our listeners. (laughs) But yeah, there you go. Uh, That's your This Week in Spaceflight History. Cool. 
that was very interesting. I'm still learning so much about telescopes because that's not my field. But luckily, we have we have Dennis here to help shed some light on it. Thank you, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. So I don't know if next week's topic will be about telescopes as well. But Dennis, you have that one. So the date range is the 8th through the 14th of June. And what is the clue you have for us? Right, well, uh, I've been watching a lot of 30 Rock lately. And so this clue was mm -hmm. originally uh, or partially... Um, based on that but next week nice. in 1969 shut it down but keep some of the camera parts <laughs> that's okay. really good so maybe telescopes are involved <laughs> all right so good 30 rock reference um and this might have something to do with telescopes as well then okay so shut it down but keep some of the camera parts and that's for next week in 1969 well if you know what that is in reference to besides 30 rock give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck everybody let's do some upcoming spaceflight events i think we have just one launch but a lot of other stuff sort of yeah. around that and somewhat related to it okay <laughs> so what the first event. All right. So first up is a Russian spacewalk. This is happening on June 2nd. So if you're listening to the show, when it comes out, you have uh, under 12 hours <laughs> to get ready yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so uh, it, it uh, the coverage begins at 1 a.m. Eastern time on June 2nd, on Wednesday. Um, the coverage begins at 1 a.m. The spacewalk begins at 1.20 a.m. This is going to be Novitsky and Dubrov, um, and it's going to be a six-and-a-half-hour spacewalk. And I have no idea what they're doing on this one. So, And the same day, but with uh, uh, 10 hours later, so you have a little bit more time to <laughs> get yourself in front of a TV or a computer and watch it, um, on June 2nd at 11 a.m. Eastern, there will be a what's on board briefing for NASA's SpaceX CRS-22 commercial cargo launch to the ISS. I'm going to go ahead and put that one on my calendar because that looks very interesting. Then on the following day, the 3rd, we have the launch of CRS-22. Uh, so that is, of course, a Falcon 9, and that is with uh, a brand new Dragon spacecraft. So yeah, this is just a cargo resupply. Uh, so the capsule will be autonomously docking, but it will be monitored, according to NASA's website, by Megan MacArthur and Shane Kimbrough. So I guess they'll just be, you know, making sure that it comes in correctly and all that. So we'll find out, I guess, the day before, um, as you said, <laughs> what exactly is on board there. The launch time is going to be at 1729 UTC, which is 129 on the East Coast of the States. And that, uh, of course, will be launching from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. So you, you can definitely check that one out. That'll be uh, very much available to watch. And I plan on watching that one. Looks fun. Yeah. So for that one, we were kind of, we were trying to figure out whether the Dragon had been reused or not. Um, and so it's it's a new cargo dragon, but the booster, this is its first flight. And then it's also going to be uh, reused to fly uh, Crew 3 later mm. this year. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Reusing a booster to fly a crew. That's interesting. That's, that's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. You, you test it on the vehicle without people on it. And then once it's flight proven, then you go ahead and put people on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That's how it should be. You know what I mean? I mean, as opposed to the other way, which is, you know, we can't fly it unless it's brand new. Yeah. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. I, I, it just, it's not going to have, as far as I know, it doesn't have the worm logo on it. And I really wish it did. I wish they would do that more often. I like that. All right. So, um, once it's launched, um, it will be rendezvousing with the space station two days later, I guess. Yeah. Um, so on June 5th, uh, Coverage begins at 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time uh, on NASA TV, of course. Docking is scheduled for 5 a.m. Eastern Time, which is a little more reasonable. Um, 
And yeah, that's uh, that's the Saturday after the launch. And then finally, we have an interplanetary event you can't see, but you can still just keep an eye out, uh, knowing that on uh, June 7th at 0932.03 UTC, uh, Juno, the uh, Jupiter orbiter, will be doing a flyby Ganymede. And so um, not quite sure what the images are going to look like, but uh, it is going to reduce the orbital period from 53 days to 43 days. So there's going to be more frequent perijobes after that. But um, this isn't the only flyby that it's going to be doing. Uh, I think this is part of its extended mission. It's going to be doing a number of ones of some of the Jovian moons uh, in the coming years. And so, uh, yeah, just uh, mm -hmm. keep an eye out. And if you are familiar with NASA eyes, that's always a fun thing to go to and get, yes. you know, a real-time context for where the spacecraft is relative to basically all the uh, other bodies in the solar system. Uh, so ju just as a reminder, um, 43 days is still well above uh, the original science orbit. Remember, um, Juno had that engine failure that kept them from going down to their original orbit. So I, I just looked it up because uh, I couldn't remember how, how small the planned science orbit was. It was 14 days, a 14-day period. So, you know, going from 53 to 43 is, is quite a bit, but it's nowhere near where they originally intended to put this vehicle. So it, it's really cool to see successful failures like this, where, you know, you don't get exactly where you want to go, but you do, you flex and twist and find uh, the the new science that you can do um, in that orbit. So it's, it's pretty cool. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Cool. All right. Well, with that, let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for enjoying our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.